Welcome everybody to Career Talk. My name is Caitlin Forth. I'm the International Employee Liaison Officer here at Careers Network. And we are so excited because this is a special episode. We're really excited because we have a guest and a co-host today. So today we're very lucky to be joined by Ben Moody from Seven Clean Seas. And then we're also very excited because we have a co-host in Bob Lee from B Enterprising here at Careers Network. So thanks both for joining us. Um, I think just quickly, Ben, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, yourself, what you do, what, what, where you're from, what you studied at uni, and kind of what you're up to now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Kate, thank you so much for um, having me today. Um, and Bob, it's great to be co-hosting. That's a very brief summary of me. Fantastic. Thanks for that. <laughs> and then Bob, do you just want to tell us a little bit about... Um... Yeah, so I'm Bob and I work for the B Enterprising team, um, which is part of the, the Careers Network family. So it's like a, it's part of, part of that. It's a really exciting role. We, uh, in its simplest form, we help students and graduates at the University of Birmingham develop entrepreneurial skills and also enterprise skills too. So we have lots of tools to help people actually go ahead and do that. But it's not all about just starting something. We also help people to develop the you know, entrepreneurial mindset to help with their CV in the future to get that graduate job. So it's, it's helping everyone, really, because everyone has that um, entrepreneurial mindset uh, within. It's just about unlocking and, and unleashing that to, to help you in the future. So, yeah, it's a really fun. Um, I'm really excited to hear from Ben. I feel like there's so much has happened in the last two years with uh, Seven Clean Seas. So I'm really looking forward to this one. So I guess without further ado, I kind of I really want to get to the Seven Clean Seas aspect, but I want to strip it back a little and and kind of figure out how you got there. So I want to talk a little bit about your time at Birmingham if that's okay and um, yeah. you know when you were at University of Birmingham first of all what did you study and did you know what you wanted to do after your studies or what did you think you wanted to do after your studies I will answer that in the reverse way that you asked me <laughs> okay I had no idea what I wanted to do absolutely mm -hmm. no clue so I know that's probably very relatable to people listening to the podcast or just generally people at uni and then answering the question what I studied I studied um, biological sciences throughout kind of studying I loved research I loved reading scientific papers I loved what research did to kind of I guess progress society on on the broader scale um, and the literature that that is produced from from doing research but I knew that throughout my studies I could provide more by understanding different topics and then going into different sectors and being like okay well how can I apply the research that I've done and really solve this problem so there's that kind of connects from from the science into then what I now know is called the private sector um, <laughs> so I, I, I think that's definitely one takeaway from studying and then the applicability of that into the real world scenario now my first two years, I was at Birmingham. Then I did a year abroad um, over in Australia. Um, had an absolutely fantastic experience. And that was really where I started to focus a little bit more on marine studies. And when I came back to Birmingham my final year, I made sure that I focused, um, I focused my kind of dissertation on uh, marine life. So I studied the effect of marine debris, so plastic pollution, 
um, on the abundance and uh, abundance and distribution of, my, of organisms across the intertidal range. So how does plastic pollution directly affect organisms um, on, on the seashore? And little did I know then that that would really, I guess, curate the career path that I'm in now. And by no means I'm saying that if you do your dissertation in something, you end up in that specific job sector. It just happened to be something that I was interested in, always loved the ocean, and then ended up just getting into this kind of plastic pollution world. And after studying it, I realized that there was more and more literature coming out, but nothing being done in the private sector to, to tackle this. Okay. Uh, and then again, that's that connection from what I studied into being like, actually, I can solve this problem from what I'm learning in university. So I hope that kind of answers that question on studying and, and not really knowing what I wanted to do at university. I think it's a really good point that so many of our students don't necessarily know what they want to do um, and that's really okay just because you study something doesn't mean that you have to go into it but similarly it doesn't mean that you can't go into it as what well, as well there are so many different options and i think what we try and focus on within careers network is it's about the skills that you're learning so so many um kind of projects or research areas or you know so much of your studies is about skills development and so what we're trying to do is unleash mm. those skills so you're aware of what skills you have but also what you can do to make them transferable to go into certain yeah. sectors that you're interested in exactly um, and i think just part of that sorry to jump in that i think one important point is as you're doing that and as you're applying your skills that you're learning throughout university you're understanding what you like yeah. if you don't like it then you're not going to want to do it more and when you settle on a career sector you have to wake up at 9 a.m. every single day and do this thing, right? So, you know, you need to understand what you like and what you're good at. Well, what you're good at tends to be what you like. Um, so I think that's super important as well as use university as a time to figure out what you like and what you don't like so that you can be like, mm, I'm not too keen on this sector. You know, don't go into accounting if you hate numbers. Yeah. Simple, simple. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's a really good point is that students have... Um, it's not a risk-free time, but you do have a few years whilst you're at university where you can try as much as you want and there's little risk to it. So you can have internships, so you can get, um, you know, we do virtual internships now or you can do um, kind of some of our consultancy projects or the boot camps to try out what it would be like working in a certain sector or working with certain employers. There are lots of different things that students can do now to kind of get a little flavor for different areas and think, oh, well, that I really enjoyed my time at, you know, during the boot camp working with this employer. Maybe I'll continue that or maybe I'll explore that and go for an internship with them. Or, you know what, actually, I thought I wanted to go into this mm. insert sector here, but actually I don't, I don't really enjoy that. So maybe I want to focus my energy on a different area. So I think that's a really important thing for students to kind of um, keep in mind and Bob would you say that obviously there's a wide range of stuff that kind of the enterprising offers that can give students opportunities to try things would you kind of agree with that statement yes I would I, I would say um, you know particularly in the last few years I think there's, there's been more at the university to help people with that so I think it's about I think what we do as well we we do have a lot of students you know and also recent graduates who come to us like in the same boat who don't actually know you know might not have a clear picture of what they want to do in the future or they or they have but they still you know need that opportunity so 
Yeah, we, we run lots of boot camps that do have that sort of sector part of it. So we have different employers with different sectors, you know, like, um, you know, sort of for, for engineers, as an example, or maybe for so like liberal arts and natural science students. So we, we kind of try and adapt what we do and, and help people find find their feet, really. It's all about, you know, um, you know, we might not have the answer straight away, but it's all, you know, it's about helping people find their own answers and see, just try stuff and just try and not be afraid to fail as well. I think that's part of it. Just try life isn't, you know, it isn't all uh, <laughs> going to work all the time. It's going to be times where you try something you don't like it or things you kind of trip up you know it's about overcoming setbacks as well so I think it's a lot about that involved to do with the entrepreneurial mindset and um, yeah ultimately helping people find their way. I think that's really important and I think also when we look at the world today um, a lot of the jobs that students will end up working in don't exist right now and the world is changing and so much is changing kind of from a technology standpoint but also just in terms of people's priorities are shifting as well and people are focusing more on things that they have an ethical alignment with and I think it's really important it's difficult then for us as career professionals at the university to prepare students for specific jobs when the reality is is that most people won't stay in their first job forever Um, and even if they do it will evolve a lot but also the world of work is changing massively so I think it's better for us to focus on you know helping students to become resilient but also to be able to forge their own path and decide what works for them and 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 what doesn't work for them rather than saying okay you're good with numbers you should be an accountant and you should stay in this job forever um because it's just not really realistic anymore is it Ben I just want to talk a little bit more about your time at university did you was there anything that you were involved in from like a non-academic standpoint so were there any internships or societies or anything that kind of helped helped you decide what you wanted to do or was it really that kind of year in Australia that was the real turning point for you? Yeah I I mean I was part of society so um, I was part of the rugby team uh, for the first two years Um, and then kind of after that um, did some squash but when I went off to you know when I went off to the year abroad in Australia I think that was definitely I guess the key point in in being like actually I'm you know, learning a lot about myself in, in that year uh, and in that time frame, um, you build a sense of independence. Whilst, yes, you have independence when you first go off to uni and, you know, you, you think you, you, you have very big shoes when you got when you first in your first year. It's a whole other ball game when you take a flight somewhere else and, you know, there's no one to help you like you are. I mean, there is obviously always someone <laughs> to help, but um, you are you are by yourself and you do learn a lot about yourself um how do you cope with making friends around the other side of the world um and i think that that really helps then be like okay well what am i actually interested in you know if i once i finish uni i'm kind of going to be in a similar situation um what what do i want to do yeah the year abroad was definitely a turning point you know my free time obviously i spent a lot of time with friends um but during study, it was, oh, actually, this module is really interesting um, for me because it's focused on ocean pollution or ocean acidification. So that's where then I guess the, the oh, I'm interested in the ocean or interested in understanding how can I scale my ideas to, to solve real world problems um, from what I'm studying. And tell me a little bit more about that jump from university to Seven Clean Season. Like, how did you how did you get there were you looking for organizations that already existed were you thinking 
we're going to have to solve this problem ourselves. What, yeah. what kind of, what brought you to where uh, you are now, I guess? Uh, that is a great question. Um, so I'll, I'll just explain it how I normally explain it. So I finished university and after university, the one thing that I was 100% certain on is that I did not want to move to London and work in a finance job. That's what I knew, right? So, you know, we're speaking about understanding things that we don't like. I didn't want that. So I knew that. So I was like, okay, well, I was then willing to take absolutely anything to just get out of the UK and use that okay. as a platform to then build off. So this one opportunity came from Network, um, which is, by the way, side note, one of the most powerful things ever, ever, um, Network. This one opportunity came from, came from my network. It was in Singapore. It was a uh, food and beverage consultancy role. I was going in and out of kitchens with hairnets on. Um, I knew then I didn't like that. That's another <laughs> thing I didn't like. So I was, I was in this internship. Um, so I'll just end that there. But what I knew at that time, I was like, okay, well, I'm in Singapore. There's a fantastic you know, network here. I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to start talking to people. How do I talk to people? Like, what do I like doing? Oh, well, I've just done a year of going down to the beach and cleaning up the beach and studying the beach. So I'll try and find beach cleanups. I'll go to sustainability events. I'll go to, you know, film screenings for sustainability movies. That's when I started going to, to corporate sustainability events okay. and startup events. And that was the first time I came into contact with other entrepreneurs and really the world of startups and instantly I, I knew, right? I, I was like, this is something where I can take what I'm learning or I can join something and jump on a bandwagon and just skyrocket it. And, and I think from going to those events and networking with different people, that's where I, I kind of grew this passion of, okay, I wanna do something in climate. I wanna tackle that issue. And I love startups and I love building things. I was never great at sitting at a desk and doing work. And so building things, right? That was when I then went to a beach cleanup uh, and met the founder of Seven Clean Seas. So now my business partner, Tom. Mm -hmm. um, so Tom and Pam originally founded Seven Clean Seas. I went down to a beach cleanup. Uh, I met Tom. I explained a little bit about my background and what I was interested in. And uh, then we went to the pub and we sat down, talked more, spoke about Seven Clean Seas. I loved what he was trying to create and the vision that it had. And I knew what I could bring as a co-founder. And then that was then how I fell into Seven Clean Seas. None of this is planned. Nothing, you can plan everything, but it will not work out. So just go with the flow uh, and just take it as it comes. Yeah, so Ben, um, I mean, that's an interesting story. So, you know, the startup in effect was already, already there. Um, how long had it been going before you made, you know, your introduction to to meet them you know how, how long had they been working on it before you started as a co-founder yeah good question so tom and pam founded seven clean seas around six months before they found they found me uh, <laughs> on the streets of singapore they kind of had built a really nice beach cleanup community in singapore and tom was still working in his other job at the time so the brand was there the idea of plastic credits was forming and the community of beach cleanups was being built so you know beach cleanups are great and this is how we started it's great educational platform but you're not going to solve the problem by just doing beach cleanups with corporates once a week and this is then what we chatted about is okay well how 
how can you take an industry like waste management and really be disruptive within it? Um, and this was then the idea that solidified over the years and, and when I first met kind of Tom, uh, Tom and Pat. So that's a, that's a great question, actually. And can you just tell us a little bit more um, for those listeners who don't know kind of what you guys do at Seven Clean Seas? Obviously, we know kind of um, the general premise that it is about ocean cleanup and about getting rid of plastics in the ocean. But can you tell us a bit more about how you guys go about that? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, we started out as a, as a small Singapore beach cleanup community. So the, um, the company was, uh, the company was founded in Singapore and that's kind of, that's where we built out of initially. Um, but really where we're at today with the organization that we've built is seven clean seas builds ocean impact projects and works with, um, and works with and empowers communities to turn the tide on plastic pollution. We collect plastic at huge volumes and we make sure that as we're having that environmental impact, we're also providing, um, providing jobs to communities in, in locations that previously either didn't have them or were under informal work within waste management. Um, I won't get into too much of that, but, but on the other side of it, we kind of co-create sustainability initiatives with organizations so we follow the methodology of measuring organizations' plastic footprints. We help them reduce their plastic footprints. And then finally, we help them offset that plastic by removing plastic directly uh, from the oceans with our plastic, uh, plastic impact projects. So we have this kind of upstream intervention where we're measuring with the consultancy, we're reducing with the consultancy, uh, and then we're having that downstream impact of directly removing it from, from the marine environment. So in a nutshell, um, that is what Seven Clean Seas is and does. And it sounds like a lot of what you do then with the consultancy side of things still must involve a lot of um, networking. And you mentioned that earlier. You talked a little bit about how um, you can't emphasize enough the importance of building your network and utilizing that. If you can put it into words, just how important that has been and how vital it's been both for you personally, but also for the organization, can you give any advice to people who maybe find networking to be uh, awkward and challenging? Yeah. And Bob, I know you'll probably have some two cents on this, definitely. But network is, network is um, only as powerful as the effort you want to put into it. And that power can get you your dream job. It can get you in positions where you never thought you'd see yourself. Um, it can also accelerate your career. You can be in a job at the moment, network in another organization within the same sector, get, a, get an increase or a, a promotion in, into that job and then network more and go back into the same company as a, as a higher up position. So you skip essentially that promotional ladder. It can put you in touch with CEOs of massive organizations to kind of understand what they do and then be like, well, have you got any positions where I could learn from and um, absorb some information? So I can't so much put it into words of how important network is, but it is definitely one of the key aids in terms of accelerating your career growth. Um, in fact, I would, I would probably put it above skill level. You can get yourself into a job by networking, but then that's obviously where the skill level comes in. Can you, can you, do the, can you actually do the job? 
I, I, hopefully that summarizes networking in uh, in a I guess a short way. I agree. I think um, I think network as a word actually sometimes is feared by people. They they feel that you know it's it's this uh, this awkward thing that has to be you know sort of forced. But uh, I think it's it, like you say, it's the act of mingling with people and finding the right connections. It's more about uh, and and that can sometimes be accidental. You know, it doesn't have to be this sort of formal setup. It can be you know like a social event that you know connected to to a business or university. It could be within societies. Maybe I think networking can be so many things, but it's about sort of finding opportunities through through new people if that's that's the way to say it but the power of that it's, it's about like i guess you, you meet someone you know you suddenly your your door is open and you have a, a potential new opportunity it doesn't always happen that way but it, it just gives you another chance that you can you know go another direction or, or develop what you already have so i think yeah the power of that is, is quite immense it's really important to kind of mention and you've both touched on this is that there are lots of different ways to network and i think sometimes when we talk about networking it seems like these formal um, intentional networking events where you go and you know sit around these um, kind of high top tables with maybe canapes or drinks and and have to talk to strangers and it, it feels very forced and those those definitely serve a purpose and and everyone is there for the same purpose so they can be really great networking opportunities there but similarly every social interaction every time you meet someone new is a networking opportunity and i think that kind of speaks to entrepreneurial mindset in my mind because some of the most successful people are the ones that take every opportunity or think of every opportunity you know every engagement as a new as a new potential opportunity for their career or um you know for the cause that they're looking to pursue as well completely agree Every conversation is an opportunity. Um, and I've realized, Kate, I didn't answer your question on in terms of people who find that awkward. Um, LinkedIn is yeah. incredible. It is an incredible platform. Um, you know, even now, I don't message people for business. I'm just like, hey, you're another co-founder or you're another founder. Let's just catch up. Yeah. What can I learn from this situation? Um, and that is a simple DM. I, if I get a DM from somebody who's applied for a job, I am more likely to, you know, get on a call with that person and understand what that person's about because I know that they want it. And mm -hmm. it's the attitude that I look for in, you know, especially in sales, you want, you want to be furious on that, on that keyboard, but yeah. you know, in any, any aspect of the business, if you have the ability to just be like, Hey, by the way, I applied for this job. Can we chat? just about the role to see whether I'm actually a good fit or whether you know anyone. And that is so powerful. It's, it just shows up, you know, the, the impression that I get or somebody gets from that is, is enormous. And that's just a quick message on LinkedIn. You know, you could be sat on the train on your phone firing off DM. So I think it shows a lot about a kind of ambition and the type of person you are and, and how much you actually want the opportunity. If you take time to, you know, do your research, but also find out about the organization straight straight from the people that are, you know, right in the in the center of it as well. I just want to talk a little bit about startups, and you know, I think sometimes a lot of people have um, really romantic views of startups. What would you say are common misconceptions that you've learned along the way of kind of working? as a founder in a startup, what are your perceptions on that? You need to have a certain type of resilience. You need to do it because you believe in your idea. 
you know, you're stuck with this company or this thing that you're building for five years, 10 years, if you're trying to go enormous, you need to be comfortable with talking about it every single day. And that resilience doesn't come from, I want to be an entrepreneur. You know, don't do it for the title. Um, you need to want to become an entrepreneur second and love your idea first. You need to believe that your idea is the best thing since sliced bread because you're going to put your time, your emotions, sacrifice into this thing for the next, I mean, minimum five years as, as a founder or co-founder um, to get it to where it needs to be. You're going to hear a lot of no's. Um, you're going to feel super lonely sometimes. So I think that's really, really important and something that is way over-romanticized about entrepreneurship. You know, you see these kind of big tech VC-backed, um, uh, you know, CEOs and tech CEOs. And um, uh, yeah, sure, it happens, but it doesn't happen to everyone. And there are so many businesses out there, incredible businesses that obviously are, are much more solid than, than these massive high um, high, high kind of value tech companies. So it's not all like that. It's not all glitz and glam. Uh, at times it sucks, but you love it and you wake up and you want to do it every single day. So, so on that, Ben, can you, can you kind of give us a, a kind of sense of a, a typical day? I mean, I, I guess that no day or no two days are, are the same. I'm sure of that, but just like an idea of what entrepreneur life is like for you when you get up in the morning and, and what follows. Yeah, it's a good question because, um, this has actually changed quite a bit uh, over the three years. So when it was just Tom and myself, you know, we were in shorts and a t-shirt in his flat, just sending emails and kind of doing everything very, not very casually, extremely intensely. But, you know, it was him, him and me sat on a sofa, just firing out emails. Um, and that was it for 12, 13 hours a day. It was pitching our idea and it was emailing people about business development opportunities or just opportunities in general or just going to networking events so that was kind of the first year then it got a little bit serious um we won a few grants with some with some um large clients it, it then became a little bit more serious and we obviously realized we needed some help and that's when we started growing the team and that's when we realized okay well actually now we need to kind of i guess step up a little bit more in terms of what we were doing on a daily basis but it is very much kind of a widespread of things it's a lot of sending sending emails so just talking to people about operational stuff um business development emails strategic conversations with tom and myself a lot of recruitment and hr as we grow the team so looking back now i'm in a very different position with what i do talking to people about different projects, talking to everyone about different projects, um, and, and then growing that team from when it was just Tom and myself. And now we're 15 people in Bali. Um, we have a team over in uh, Singapore, and then also a team in um, Bintan Island, Indonesia, um, which is made up of around 30 people. And now we're growing into, uh, growing into Thailand as well. So the spread of what I do changes day-to-day -day, yes but also macro looking at the time of 17 seas that's also changed as well so i hope that gives some insight but it's extremely wishy-washy what i do on a daily basis i think that kind of epitomizes the life of an entrepreneur though i think that's one of the differences between working for 
or working in a startup versus working in a you know a large multinational corporation and you know some of these bigger companies your role is very defined you do very similar things day to day uh you wear one hat and that is that's what you do whereas i think when you're working with an sme or a startup you have to be at times everything you know like you're saying you you do business development you do strategic things you do hr you do recruitment you do kind of the more um granular bits as well there you you do everything at every point so you have to be kind of a, a master of everything um which i can imagine is um an incredibly steep learning curve as well if you know you're not from those business backgrounds yeah yeah have you found that to be challenging yeah I, um <laughs> definitely i was i was quite lucky so tom he's got around six years six years in set or God, I can't remember now, three years in recruitment and then like seven years in sales. So he did have a very solid sales background. And that was something definitely that, that as I was getting into it, I learned from quite, quite quickly. And, uh, you know, obviously if you're just a, a founder with, with no experience coming straight out of university, you need to kind of learn from as many people as possible in many, um, many different industries. Um, I would say for, for people listening, if you want to progress as quickly as possible and learn multiple different skills and don't, and, and don't really see yourself as doing just one thing over and over again, every single day, um, startups are fantastic, not founding startups, but just entering into a startup. Um, you know, you learn so much about yourself and what you like very, very quickly, because when you're, when you're joining a startup, you do do everything. You know your job role could be um, uh, your job role could be business business development executive, but you'd be doing account management. You could be managing the sales pipeline. You could be dipping in and out of marketing and content creation. So you do end up wearing so many hats when you go into a startup, and you then understand whether you like startups or not, and then whether you want to actually found one yourself, um, which is which is actually super important because you kind of get a taste for it. I think that's incredibly interesting. And I think it's, startups aren't for the faint hearted. And I think, you know, like you were saying, you have to, there has to be a passion for, for the project or a passion for the cause uh, above the passion for starting your own business. Um, I'm just, I just wanted to ask one more question. So I understand that Seven Clean Seas has um, a contract with the World Cup. Can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of how that came about, but also what you guys will be doing and, and what that means for you. Yeah, absolutely. So this was one of those moments that in my, obviously in my career and as a business that, yeah, it was a, it was a massive highlight. It was a life-changing moment to be completely honest. When we found out that we won that contract, how it came about was hilarious. It was quite literally a random email. I have no idea how the Supreme Committee of Delivery and Legacy found us. It was a random email to our general hello at sevencleanseas.com inbox. And it said, hi, we're from the World Cup. Uh, we're organizing the World Cup. We'd love to find out a little bit more about plastic neutrality. Tom and I freaked out. We were like, let's get on a call. We don't care what time. Obviously they're in Qatar, Doha. We'll, we'll, let's, we jumped at the opportunity. So we got on a call, um, it was extremely serious. It was definitely more of an education for them. They didn't really know much about it. We explained the concept of plastic neutrality and then explained seven clean seas and how 
you know, the World Cup could look at plastic neutrality. And, and obviously, we're thinking, oh, my gosh, this has never been done before. So, you know, I mean, we can do this, but how do we do this? Right. So that was, I guess, a, a year and a half ago. We didn't hit anything. We were following up like crazy. We were like, hey, guys, any word? Um, and then for kind of the next six months, next eight months, we were like, oh, my gosh, OK, what's what's going to happen here? Like, come on, are they going to get back to us? Are they not? Are they going to do this thing? And then, I don't know, after eight months of that, we found out from them. They sent us an email saying, let's have a follow up call. There's going to be a tender out. So we had to tender for we had to tender for with the government. It was a government tender. So we then had to tender along with other organizations um, globally uh, to, to win this kind of uh, win this deal. It was our first tender, uh, let alone government tender. Um, and we learned a lot about ourselves and, um, and, and government tenders in that process. And we, we, you know, we submitted it with the team. So Ollie and, and from, from uh, Trisha from Creative Partnerships and Ollie from our head of sustainability consultancy, we built this proposal around measuring, doing the world's first measuring of a mega event. So building the methodology to measure plastic at a, me uh, a mega event. We then looked at reduction strategies for that for that mega event. So at the World Cup, redu reducing plastic at the World Cup, then looking at that key piece, so plastic neutrality and plastic offsetting. So we submitted this holistic proposal, which identified measure, reduce, offset. And then how do they talk about that? What legacy are they gonna leave behind? So this was that creative partnerships aspect. What are we doing at the World Cup to help people raise awareness of plastic pollution and, and the work that the World Cup's doing? So we packaged all this together. We, we DHL'd this proposal to, um, uh, to Qatar and we heard back and we won it. And it was like, oh my God, I was crying. It was amazing. Oh, so, um, uh, so yeah, that was, that was massive for us. And, and I guess really summarizes the work that we were doing. What we're doing now is Trisha is executing this huge kind of uh, stand at the World Cup. So that's gonna be under the brand that Trisha has built uh, called One Tide which is now the government brand for policy and advocacy um, in Qatar for, for, for plastics. And, wow. and, you know, that was because of the work that Seven Clean Seas has done. So really trying to move the needle in Qatar. Um, and then Ollie's work, you know, he's publishing the methodology on, on the world's first uh, measurement of a mega event. And the case study is the World Cup. Um, and then reduction strategies and then that offset pieces is, is compensating for the usage of plastic waste. So if you go into the World Cup and you see some plastic being used there, that whilst you're using that plastic, Seven Clean Seas is removing that plastic from, from the oceans and compensating for that use. Because if you're using plastic at the World Cup, most likely that plastic is necessary and you know there are no other substitutions for that. So that is that work and, and that's really provided a springboard for for investment now um, and, and kind of growing the business um, to, to where it is today. That's really exciting. Congratulations. I'm really, really looking forward to kind of seeing what that does for you guys as an organization and seeing, because I, I feel like that's going to be a real springboard. Um, you yeah. guys are already working so globally, but that just kind of the more exposure that you get and the more you do with different countries and, and on a larger scale is just going to kind of send you guys into space fingers crossed so, well i you know i'm excited for you how how can people in the uk get involved with supporting seven clean seas or kind of supporting what you guys are doing 
wicked question. So there's many different ways to involve uh, or get involved with seven clean seas. Um, we obviously have that kind of business arm, which is with the consultancy measure, reducing, offsetting. Um, but but that's more for kind of uh, the private sector. If you're just at home and you're an individual and you feel like you can't do anything, um, head to our website, www.7cleanseas.com, and we use uh, merchandise sales to mobilize money and donations to go directly towards our projects. Um, and again, just help us remove plastic from the ocean. So whilst it's not up yet, it will be up towards the end of the year, which is really exciting. And sign up to our newsletter to just keep in the loop on that. And, you know, there are so many things that you can do in terms of educating yourself, even your sphere of influence at university within your friends, you can, you can help in and yeah, just the ecosystem of seven clean seas, just get yourself involved and you'll learn a lot about that, about what you can do. I have to say the final thing for me is like visually, I think there's some really cool yellow uh, t-shirts that the volunteers wear when they do the plastic uh, cleanup. So, so yeah, look out for those because they look so cool. Yes, on social media. yes Bob. I, yeah, <laughs> the yellow is bright and uh, we're, we're aggressive with our branding. I like it. Well, All good. Yeah. While we've got him, just the one thing I wanted to know, actually, just really quickly is yeah. quite briefly, what does the future of seven clean seas look like? So after the World Cup, have you got sort of grand plans ahead in the future? Yeah, fantastic question. Um, and I love this one. So we've got a target, obviously, of removing 10 million kilos of ocean plastic by 2025. That is a massive feat and will require global expansion of our bright yellow materials recovery facilities, which hopefully you'll see popping up in Central America, South America, across APAC, and, and kind of looking in, into Europe and Africa as well. So, you know, global expansion on plastic collection um and hopefully we are well we're launching our business to consumer stuff as well so hopefully you will be able to buy those t-shirts and, and get involved from a consumer level and and build that kind of following and and i guess education and society and community feel um that we want to build here at seven clean seats Great. Well, Ben, honestly, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really, really exciting to talk to you and to hear a bit more about kind of your journey um, straight from the horse's mouth, what it's like um, kind of being involved in the startup, but also from that international aspect. And Bob, thank you so much for co-hosting with us. It's been really nice. Thank you. It's been awesome. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Thanks. Mm -hmm.